I should probably take a minute and introduce myself as well. My name's Glenn, uh, Glenn Barnes. I am the coach for the third and fourth grade girl aftershock. And um, yeah, we're having a great time. We don't always score the most points, but man, are we having a great time. Uh, we're getting better every week. Uh, they're having fun. They're building friendships. And it's just incredible the love that you can build with a group of people by just playing basketball together um, every week. And so together with my son, Andrew, we are uh, one of the, the several hundred coaches in this community and out of this church. And so uh, we love it. And we do want to welcome all of our uh, Upward families and, and uh, parents and coaches and all those kind of things. So, well, hey, if you would grab your message notes, you received some message notes when you came in. Um, I encourage you to grab a Bible as well and open it up to Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, you can find it there in the table of contents. And uh, we are beginning a brand new series today on the book of Acts. And I am so excited for us to go through this book um, together. So you may know that our theme for the whole year is all about the Holy Spirit. Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is alive in us. So during January, in these first four and five weeks, we actually took more of kind of a theological approach. We tried to be kind of systematic about who the Holy Spirit is and what he means for us. Now when we come to the book of Acts, this is going to be so fun because we get to see the Holy Spirit in action. We get to see the Holy Spirit empowering not only one of the most exciting times in history, but the launch of the early church that we still uh, follow in their footsteps. So I am super excited about that. Well, hey, talking about the church or speaking of the church, in his book, uh, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat, um, John Ortberg tells, I think, a funny story about a pastor who was kind of struggling in life. After all, there's been a lot of kind of negative things about the church out there. I think this guy's church was, was kind of struggling. And one day, um, he was on a flight, an airline, airplane flight, and uh, he has to sit next next to this guy who clearly is very successful very expensive suit, reading the Wall Street Journal on his iPad. You could tell this guy just has it together. The pastor's a little intimidated by the whole thing. He thinks, you know what, I'm just going to keep my head down and I just, you know, get to the end of this flight. I don't even need to talk to this guy. Well, that didn't work because they sit down and right away, this guy starts to, to talk to the, this pastor. And he starts to tell him especially about the very important work that he does. And he says that he's in the beauty industry. And they are, you know, having this very very influential uh, business by changing the way that people look. He says you can change the way they view themselves. And he talks about how lucrative it is um, and how much power and influence it is. And then finally, when this successful businessman stops, uh, realizes he's been talking about himself the whole time, he turns to the pastor and he says, what about you? What do you do? Now, that's always kind of an awkward thing for a pastor, uh, but this is what this man writes happens. He didn't want to even say anything, but he knew that he should, and so he writes this. He says, the spirit began to brood over the face of the deep, and order and power emerged from chaos, and a voice in a whisper reminded me, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. And so he started in, and he said to this man, he says, it's interesting that we have similar business interests. I said, you are in the body-changing business. I'm in the personality-changing business. He said, we apply basic theocratic principles to accomplish indigenous personality modification. This guy was hooked, even though he would never admit it. He says, you know, I think I've heard of that, he replied hesitantly. He said, but do you have an office in the city? 
the man to the pastor said, oh, we have many offices. We have offices up and down the state. In fact, we're national. We have several offices in every state of the union, including Alaska and Hawaii. He had this puzzled look on his face. He was searching his mind to identify this huge company that he must have read or heard about and maybe in his Wall Street Journal. He, and so the pastor goes on. He says, as a matter of fact, we've gone international. The management has a plan to put at least one office in every country of the world by the end of the business era. I paused and said to him, do you have that in your business? Well, no, not yet, he answered, but you mentioned management. How do they make all that work? He said, oh, it's a family concern. There's a father and a son, and they run everything. <laughs> it must take a lot of capital, he asked skeptically. You mean money, I asked? Yeah, I suppose so. No one really knows how much it takes, but we never worry because there's never a shortage. The boss always seems to have enough. He's a very creative guy. And the money is, well, just there. In fact, those of us in the organization have a saying about our boss. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Oh, he's into ranching as well. <laughs> no, it's just a saying we have to indicate his wealth. My friend sat back a little confused in his seat and he said, well, well, what about you? He said, oh, the employees, they are something to see. I said, they have a spirit that pervades the organization. It works like this. The father and the son love each other so much that their love filters down through the organization so that we all find ourselves loving one another too. He says, I know this sounds old fashioned uh, in our world, in a world like ours, but I have people in the organization who are willing to die for me. Do you have that in your business? I was almost shouting now. People were uh, starting to shift noticeably in their seats. He said, not yet, uh, he said, but quickly changing the subject. Well, but do you have good benefits? Good benefits, they are substantial, I countered. We have complete life insurance, fire insurance, all the basics. You might not believe this, but this is true. I have holdings in a mansion that's being built for me right now for my retirement. Do you have that in your business? Not yet, he answered wistfully. The light was dawning. He said, you know, there's one thing uh, uh, that bothers me. I've read journals, and if your business is all that you say it is, why haven't I heard about it before? The pastor said, that is a good question. After all, we have 2,000 years of tradition. Would you like to sign up? And he says, and over the next uh, rest of the flight, we became more than casual strangers um, on that day. And I love that because um, the reality is the church, for all her problems, for all her warts, for all our stuff, the church is still the organization that God has put into place to be his hands and feet in the world. The church is still, to this day, the hands and the feet and the mouth and the eyes and ears of Christ to take his good news literally into every corner of the world. And kind of like a, a stone that's thrown into a, a pond and the ripples start to, to spread out. In the book of Acts, that first stone thrown in is the early church. And the ripples of that church are still being felt by you and I today. In fact, we are uh, those ripples. So we are going to be jumping in uh, to the book of Acts. Before we uh, turn to Acts 1, though, just kind of by way of introduction, I want to kind of answer the question, why is it important that we study the book of Acts? Obviously, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and there's much to learn about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. But even more than that, why should every believer know and study and care about 
about the book of Acts. And I want to suggest three things um, that originally came to me from Pastor Renee Scheffler. The first one is this. Number one is Acts is important because it reveals the root of our faith. It takes us back to the very foundation and the root of our faith. You know, I said earlier, the church has taken some hits especially in recent years. There's a a narrative out there that you Christians are are judgmental, hypocritical, unloving. And the truth is a lot of bad stuff has been done in the name of Jesus and in the name of the church over the last 2,000 years. Well, what Acts does is it helps us strip away 20 centuries of baggage and go back to say this is how it was in the original design. One of the things I love about the book of Acts is it's a book of firsts. There's so many things that it's the, the first time that it happens. It, it's the first uh, kind of international revival meeting. And then it's the first coming and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Almost immediately after that, you have the starting of the first church. Right after that, you have the first church potluck supper. Uh, maybe it was a pancake breakfast. I don't know. I just know there was food there. It was the first church miracles start to place, take place. They have the first church fights and disagreements recorded for us in this book. You see the first martyr, the first missionaries, the first time the name Christian is used. And as we spend these couple months together studying the book of Acts, it's going to push us back to our roots, to move back to what it means to be spirit-filled followers of Christ. And you may say, hey, that sounds great, but I imagine that there's also some of us uh, that think, hey, that all sounds really good, but after all, this is still the, the Bible that you're talking about, right? How can I know that the Bible's really reliable? Isn't it, you know, a bunch of stories and myths, you know, what the apostles chose to share with us? How can we know that this stuff is reliable? Well, to help answer that question, let me just tell you a little story about this man. Uh, that is a man by the name of Sir William Ramsey. Ranz- uh, he actually won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1904, so a while back. Uh, he was one of the people who contributed to the discovery of helium as well as several other elements, and so he was this brilliant scientist who was always recognized for that. But William Ramsey was also a first-rate historian. Some people are just so smart, they can do all these things. And Ramsey was one of those guys. So he spent 25 years studying the Bible, the New Testament especially, and specifically the book of Acts. Now, he approached it as a skeptic, someone who was trying to prove all the reasons why it couldn't be true. But after 25 years, I want you to see what William Ramsey wrote. He said this. He said, Luke, the author of of the book, is a historian of the first rate. All distances are accurate. All city places are accurate. Even the shipping routes are accurate. In every historical test applied to this book, Luke gets high marks. In short, this author should be placed alongside the greatest historians. Incidentally, Ramsey, during his study, commits his life and becomes a follower of Christ. Christ. And you could read uh, some of his stuff. Well, you may say, hey, that's cool. That's over a hundred years ago. A lot has changed in the last hundred years. What about, you know, more modern scholars? What do they say? Well, let me share one uh, from an A.N. Sherwin-White. He was a leading historian at Oxford University. And following almost the same logic as um, Ramsey, this is what uh, Sherwin-White wrote in more recent times. He said, the historian historical framework, talking about the book of of Acts, is exact. The details are precise and correct. As documents, these narratives belong to the same historical series as provincial and imperial sources of the first and early second history, uh, second century. So in other words, it really does reveal not only a good history, good history, but it reveals 
the roots of our faith presented to us in an accurate way. And so that's one of the reasons that it's worth spending this time to study um, the book of Acts. Second reason is this. It's going to help me and it's going to help you understand the rest of the New Testament. Because especially if you're kind of new to following Christ or new to the Bible, or even if you've been studying the Bible for years, it's easy sometimes to open up your Bible and you read the verse and maybe the verse means something to you, but you just wonder like, how does it all fit together? How does it all make sense? And the book of Acts is exceptionally important for understanding the New Testament. So just a little context by way of review, but if you're kind of new to this, this is the way the New Testament is set up. The first four books you might know are what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell the story of Jesus and his disciples. Then most of the rest of the New Testament are letters from the apostles written after Jesus' death and resurrection, and they're letters written from the apostles to different churches all around the Roman Empire. And so the book of Acts helps bridge those two by describing uh, how at the end of the Gospels, when you come to almost the end of the Gospels, you see this. You see the disciples are discouraged and defeated, and Jesus is dead. And it seems like the whole thing is over. Then in the Gospels, we hear the resurrection of Jesus described, and immediately after that, there's some appearances of Jesus. Those carry on into what we're going to see in the first chapter of Acts today. Uh, But then suddenly, the, the, the Holy Spirit comes, and the next thing we see is over the next 30 years, the book of Acts takes about 30 years or fills up about 30 years, this little group of discouraged, defeated believers start to literally change the world. They spread out across most of the known world, including all the way into Rome, and maybe even more significant than that, they take something that had once been just a kind of a Jewish religion, or or even just kind of a slice of the Jewish religion, and they see by God's leading that the doors are thrown wide open to all people. And all of that takes place in the book of Acts, and it helps it tie all together. So we see how the words and the life and teachings of Jesus uh, that we read about and see fulfilled, whether it's in the, the letters or even in Revelation, are all tied together by kind of this hinge book that is the book of Acts. But then the third reason why I think it's so important that we would take this time to study the book of Acts, this might be the most important one for you, I think it's the most important one for me, is it can ignite courage and faith and vision in your life. And who doesn't need those things? And I was thinking about it in my 35 plus years as a follower of Christ, one of my greatest temptations is is just to kind of cruise through life, right? Just to kind of put it in cruise control and and go along. It's not like you stop believing in God. It's not like God's not there, you know, but, but you don't find yourself leaning into him. You don't find yourself filled with the the power that you read about. You're just kind of going through life trying to be a good person, and it just seems kind of void of power. Well, one of the things that we're going to see in uh, this study is, is the, this, um, this passion uh, that we see in the early followers. And because when you're kind of cruising along through life, what, you look at your life and does it have the faith and the courage and the, and the, the vision that you want? For me, it doesn't, right? 
And, and so what we're going to see is we're going to see these people under extraordinary odds, not just cruise through life, but lean in and be filled with God and filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that is courageous and full of faith and full of vision. In fact, there's a, a quote from a, a pastor, Ray Johnston, uh, Johnstone up in, um, in Sacramento. He said this about the book of Acts, and he was talking about all the things that the Christians in the early church didn't have. Catch this. He said they didn't have financial reserves. They didn't have great buildings. They didn't have favorable government conditions, supportive media, planes, trains, automobiles, or boats with motors. But what did they have? Impact. They went from 120 to 3,000 in one day and to most of the known world in 30 years. He says this, though, the question of Acts is this, can it happen again? And if so, how can it happen again? Because we see the courage and the faith and the vision of this early church, and we have to ask, what fueled those things? What inspired these people? And one of the things we're going to see time and time again is what we see is the Holy Spirit alive in them. God alive in them, just as the Holy Spirit can be alive in us. All right, so that's kind of some introduction to why study uh, the book of Acts. For the rest of our time, let's jump into chapter one, Acts chapter one, because all this talk about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit actually arrives, comes onto the scene in full force in chapter two. You're gonna wanna be here next week for that, um, for sure. Um, So the question is then, what is happening in chapter one while God's people are waiting for for God to to show up? mentioned that, that sometimes there's seasons of, of waiting and what's happening in this church as they're waiting for the next thing to happen. We're going to take a look at that. Let's start by Acts 1 verse 1 and it goes like this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So there's some real important kind of introduction stuff in there. Um, First of all, we know that the author of the book is Luke. Though his name doesn't appear there, he says this is a sequel to his book. He refers back to his first book, and the first book that he's referring back to is the Gospel of Luke. And so Acts is kind of a sequel um, to Luke. Luke was a doctor by profession. We'll get to know him a little bit as we study this book. Um, We see later um, that he was very committed to giving orderly and factual accounts of all the gospel writers. He maybe uh, gives the most attention to, to detail. We also are going to see that, that Luke joins Paul in some of the missionary journeys um, himself. So the author of the book is Luke. The recipient, the guy who originally received this uh, writing, was a man by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus. Theophilus, you kind of could break that down. It actually means lover of God. Theo. Uh, God uh, lover. Um, And so some people have suggested maybe it's not even one 
person. Maybe it's like a, a group of people and like Theophilus is like a code name, you, you lovers of, of God. Uh, that's one theory. I, I think most academics and most people uh, do think that Theophilus was one person. We don't know exactly who Theophilus was. Uh, most likely he was a Roman authority, a person of influence, and as I said, authority, and someone who either likely had converted to Christ or certainly was checking things out because uh, Luke is very intentional about, I'm giving you this orderly uh, account so that you can know. I also want you to notice that in those verses that we just read there, there's a hint to what Luke gives us as the purpose of the book, which I want to suggest is this, the continuing or the ongoing work of Christ. Why do I say that? Well, Luke says in his first book, I wrote to you, Theophilus, about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach, right? So you've already heard what Jesus began to do and teach. Implied in that is now I want you to see the ongoing work or the uh, continuing work of Christ. All right, back to verse four. Verse four, it says, so on one occasion, while he, talking about Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, this is before he's ascended up to heaven, uh, he was eating with the disciples and he gave them this command Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, uh, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of heaven? Well, uh, let's, we'll go ahead and stop there in, in verse four or verse five. So, um, all right. So Acts takes place, or Acts chapter one takes place in those, we see the 40 days that after Jesus resurrected, before he ascended to heaven, then there's another 10 days before the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So Acts chapter one that we're looking at takes place in those 50 uh, days. And with that in mind, uh, before Jesus is taken up into heaven, Jesus gives them a very specific command. And the command is this stay here. Don't leave Jerusalem, even though they were afraid. They wanted to leave. He said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. So essentially, the command in Acts 1 is you have to wait. Be still. Don't run away. Don't do all these things. Just wait. Now, how many of you love to wait? Anybody here love to wait? How many of you at the grocery store choose the longest line. You just look look in and how many of you, let's be honest, have a way like a system in your head to choose the shortest line, right? You're like counting items and people, is that just me? I'm like, how about, uh, how about traffic? Anybody love to just get in the slowest line of traffic? If you do follow me, I usually choose that one. Um, anybody love the DMV? Anybody love the DMV? I actually, I don't know if we have any DMV workers here. I actually went to the, I had to go to the DMV um, this week um, to take care of the paperwork from the bear in my car. And um, uh, it's like half a Lodi is in that building, I, I tell you. But you know, they also do have like this new online check-in. So the DMV uh, does go a little fast. But the point is nobody really loves to wait except God. One of the things we see time and time again, and and not that God wants to wait, but God wants us to wait. He tells us time and time again the value that he places and the work that takes place in our life when we learn to wait. We see it from cover to cover of the Bible. So in Acts 37, I'm sorry, in uh, Psalm 37, we read this, be still, be still before the Lord. That's so hard for us to do, but be still and wait patiently for him. 
Isaiah 40, one of my favorite verses says this, but those that wait upon the Lord, if you wait upon the Lord, what happens? You renew your strength. You will soar on wings like eagles. You will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not be faint. And that all starts with waiting on the Lord. And as I said, you see this throughout the Bible. So many of God's greats are required to to wait. God tells Abraham, you're gonna be the father of a great nation. And it's over 25 years that he and Sarah have to wait before the, the first child is actually born. And they're, they're childless until that time. Moses is told, you're going to lead the people into the promised land. He waits 40 years of wandering into the desert. And Moses himself never really even fully gets to go in. Think of the life of David. We don't always remember this, but David is actually anointed, called out that he's going to be the king. They anoint him to be the king. And then it's another 20 years while he watches Saul all but run the nation into the ground before he actually becomes the king. They waited generations for the Messiah to come. And as a church, we are in a season of waiting now, waiting for Christ to return. And in Acts chapter 1, what we see is that the early disciples are told to wait. And here's kind of the big idea uh, of this passage, of this chapter, if if I could suggest anything. I think sometimes what we do while you wait just might be as important or maybe even more important than what you're waiting for. Because you're in that season where you're go, 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 and you want to get to that thing, and it's all about getting to that thing. But what God wants to do with you while you're on the way to that thing is probably even more important than you arriving at that. And that's what we talk about when we talk about waiting and waiting on the Lord. So what I want to do for the rest of our short time before we dig into communion or or, uh, celebrate communion uh, together is I want to see some things that the disciples do um, that teach us about waiting on the Lord. So Acts 1, uh, verse 6, I started to read this. Acts 1 says, They gathered around him and asked him, this is after uh, Jesus had said wait, they gathered around Jesus And they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And so one of the things we see here is that waiting on the Lord is not about focusing on times and dates. The problem is our human nature always wants to focus on the times and dates. If you're like me, I can wait for almost anything if you tell me how long it's going to be, right? If you're like, hey, after the end of three weeks, at the end of six months, whatever it is, if you just wait for that, then you'll be done. We want to know the time. And that's kind of the disciples thinking. And so Jesus says, don't, don't leave Jerusalem, just wait here. And what's the first question they hit him with? How long? How long, Lord, do we have to wait? They say, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore your kingdom to Israel? John Calvin, the old reformer, has a great line about the the disciples' questions. He says, there are actually more errors than words in the disciples' question. They're getting it so wrong by focusing on the times and dates there. Because they're focused on a national uh, coming. They're focused on maybe even a, a violent overthrow, a political overthrow. They're focusing on a time that it would come. And Jesus says, no, it's not about the times or the dates. You're getting it wrong about my kingdom. He says, you're focused on the wrong business. 
He says the right business is not the times and dates. The right business is the mission that I'm going to give you. And that's where he gives them the mission. He says, but instead, wait here. The Holy Spirit's going to become, you're going to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You may know that's the outline for the book of Acts. That's basically the outline that we're going to follow. First, they take the, the, first the Holy Spirit comes. Then they start to take the gospel in Jerusalem where they are. Then before long, it starts to spread out to Judea and Samaria. And by the time we get to the end of the book, or the second half of the book, we see that it's going to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus says, it's a time to wait, but waiting on the Lord is not about focusing on the times and dates. It's focusing on the mission. And the mission is keep being my witnesses. Keep being my witnesses. All right, let's keep going. Verse 12 says this. It says, uh, after that, then Jesus uh, ascends um, into heaven. Skipped a few verses there to verse 12. It says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. It's a Sabbath day walk, kind of a short walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. As I said, I love the detail that, that, uh, that Luke gives us. He lists out all the apostles that were there by name. He says there were some others there, but he lists specifically all the apostles. If you slowed down and counted those, you would notice that there are 11 apostles or disciples' names that he lists there. But you can see he's kind of a historian trying to give a lot of, of details, a real-life account. But here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that in this time of waiting on the Lord, it's not about times and dates, but what it is about is that waiting on the Lord means that it's a time for us to draw close to God, specifically through prayer and fellowship. They don't know how long it's going to be. They don't know what it's going to be, but here's what they know. They need God, right? They, they, they're still kind of clueless about everything that's going to happen, but they know that they need God. And you know what else? They need one another. And so what do we see them getting right? They gather together constantly for, for prayer, They gather together constantly with one another. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times when we're especially in a difficult season of waiting, it tends to be a time that we isolate ourselves. We think, oh, this is so hard, so what am I going to do? I'm going to pull away. The disciples teach us just the opposite. In those hard times, you lean in. You lean into God. You lean in to one another. And if you're in a season where you're waiting for something Now's the time to draw close to your Christian brothers and sisters. Now's the time to grow in your spiritual disciplines. There's a fascinating uh, article that appeared a few years ago in the New York Times, and it was about the Houston airport. And the Houston airport, it's a huge airport, um, for years would always get complaints about the wait times, specifically at their baggage carousels, right? So where you waited to pick up your bags, the people would always complain. In Houston, it took so long. They'd get these complaints. And so they took these complaints seriously. They started to do everything they could. They hired more workers. They even sped up the machines to go a little bit faster. But no matter what they did, people stepped, kept complaining. Eventually, they got the actual wait times down to some of the, the shorter wait times in all, you know, nationally uh, out there. But people still complained. They couldn't figure it out until finally one day someone said this. He said, you know, the other thing that's true at the Houston airport is it's one of the shortest walk times from your gate to your baggage carousel. So in other words, you would get off the plane, you'd walk there, you'd get there, and you'd feel like you're waiting 
for your bag, even though the bag was coming in a relatively short time. So what did they do to fix the problem? They made you walk a little farther. They changed the route. And we all laughed, but you know what happened? The complaints stopped. Because the reality is the time that you had to wait didn't change at all. But what you were doing with that time suddenly changed. And it felt productive and it felt meaningful. And that's God saying to the disciples, wait here. And what do they do? They pray. They come together. They keep working. They don't give up. And if you are in that time where you are tempted to pull away, that is the worst thing you could do in that season of waiting. You need God. And you need your church family. You need one another in those times. Which brings us to the third thing that we see, kind of a same, another correlation of the same principle, which is this, that waiting on the Lord does not mean you stop working for the advancement of the kingdom. You need God, you, you need one another. You also need to keep working for God, serving God, working for the advancement of the kingdom. So I said in verse 13, when Luke lists all the disciples, there are only 11 that are listed. Now, how many disciples should there be? There should be 12, right? So we had the death of of Judas who kills himself at the end of the gospels. And so they just know that they're waiting and they need to get ready because something's going to happen. And so Peter, and I guess the rest of the people understood that they needed 12 apostles. And so they start to talk about this. We need to add another one to our group. And so they start to say, well, it needs to be someone who's been around, someone who's experienced these things. And in verse uh, 23, it says this. So they nominated two men. They nominated Joseph, called uh, Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and they nominated Matthias. And they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry. When Judas left to go where he belongs, then what did they do? They cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias so that he was added to the 11 apostles, and now they had 12. By the way, fascinating fact, I think at least, this is the last time that you'll see God's people casting lots to determine the Lord's will. Why? Because the very next verse, we're going to see the coming of the Holy Spirit. They're going to have God living inside of them now. They don't need to cast lots to hear God's voice or to be directed by those things. They have God's Spirit like we have God's Spirit alive in us. And the Holy Spirit would direct and lead them. But here's the point. Even in this season of waiting, even when they have to sit around, it's not like they're sitting around. They keep doing whatever they can to serve to grow, to connect to one another, to advance the kingdom so that when the wait was over, they would be ready to roll. And if you are in a time when God has you in a season of waiting, I challenge you not to say that this is a season to do nothing, but instead this is a season to keep working, keep serving, keep praying, keep growing, keep growing in fellowship so that when things change, you are ready to roll for all that God has for you. You see, what God is doing through you while you wait probably is even more important than what you're waiting for. So I mentioned just a couple small examples, you know, waiting at the DMV or waiting in the line at the grocery store. Those are are small things, casual things. But a lot of us know there are far more difficult and serious things that we wait for, right? The single person who's waiting for that relationship. When's it my turn, Lord? When's it my turn, Lord? The, The young couple waiting to have kids and day after day and week after week, they pray and everybody else seems to have kids even when they're not even trying the, the person who's um, in that 
trapped in that dead-end job. When's it ever going to change? Waiting for the broken relationship to heal. Waiting for the prodigal child to come home. There's waiting for a spouse who's struggling and you wonder, are things ever going to change? There's waiting for the medicine to work, for the sickness to heal, for the circumstances to change, for the money to arrive. Waiting for the hurt to go away, the depression to stop, the forgiveness to come, or the relationship to be restored. We wait and we wait for so many things and what we do in the waiting matters so much. In fact, as we turn to a time of communion now, would you take it from King David who says this? King David, remember, we said he was anointed to be king, but then he waits 20 crazy years being chased all over the country by Saul, worried about his own life. But finally, uh, at the end, or even in the middle of that, we don't know the exact time that this psalm was written, but in Psalm 40, this is what David writes. I love it. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. It's so hard, but I waited patiently for the Lord. And what happens? God turned to me and he heard my cry. He heard my cry and not only that, he lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock and he gave me a a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And how did that all come about? It came about by him waiting patiently on the Lord. Well, we're going to turn now to a time of uh, communion, and communion is a, a, a beautiful thing because communion is one of the things that reminds us that Jesus is really with us. We talk about this month after month when we talk about communion, but Jesus was sending his disciples out uh, to go out and, and do the things we talked about, to go and change the world, and he knows that they are going to need him. And so on the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he's together with these people that are going to be the world changers, and he takes some bread. They're celebrating the Passover meal, and he breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body given for you. And he says, this is, the, the, uh, this is my, my body I'm given for you. And then he takes the cup. And in the same way, after giving thanks, he passes out the cup and he says, this is my blood poured out for you, blood of a new covenant. So it's the reminder that I am going to be with you and a reminder that you can be right with God through me. If you are in a season of waiting, you need God. And communion reminds us that God is with you through Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need something I can hold in my hand and something I can taste and I could touch. Jesus knew that, and he gave us this simple ordinance. And so we're going to take communion as we often do, today, uh, often do here at church. We're going to pass around the, the bread. And if you would hold on to that, the worship team's going to be leading us in some music. You're welcome to sing along or to sit quietly, whatever you would like to do. Um, but that's a time between you and the Lord um, to pray, uh, to recommit, maybe to commit your life for the very first time. And so when the bread comes around, if you would hold on to that. Then after everybody's received that, I'll lead us in eating the bread and then I will pray uh, for the, the cup and then we'll uh, pass that around and that'll be an opportunity for you to take that whenever you're ready. Again, as the worship team's leading us in some songs. So we invite you to the Lord's table. Those that are hurting, those that are broken, those that messed up last night and messed up this morning, those that are in a season of waiting, those that are drifting through life, Jesus sees you and he loves you and he invites you. Come to the table. Let the body and the blood of Christ wash over you and cleanse you for the very first time or for the hundredth time. Jesus is there for you. Well, I'm so excited. We've got our young adult group uh, leading us in communion and so Jonah Sonner is going to pray for the bread. So thank you, Jonah, for that. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, your body was broken for us so that this body of sin, our collective bodies of sin, would be nailed to the cross for eternity. That work would be perfect and accomplished, and one day we might be remade in the image of your glorious heavenly body. And Lord, in faith, we gather at this table to take this element, and we sit together and we profess through this act that we will be changed, that the work is done and accomplished. And Lord, we celebrate that today. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for this reminder. We pray you'd bless this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 The body of Christ given for you. Let's eat it together in remembrance of him. All right, I want to invite Zach, who's going to lead us in a word of prayer uh, for the blood of Christ. Thanks, brother. Father God, we just want to come to you today and thank you for what you did by spilling your blood, Father, for paying atonement for our sins, allowing us to come directly to you when you tore that veil, Father. So, Lord, I just ask that today as we partake in elements that uh, there would just be a spirit of thankfulness over this congregation, that they would not forget who you are, Father. That as they go through their day, that they would remember exactly what you did and how you humbled yourself and came so you could spill your blood for our sins. We thank you for this moment. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Zach. Appreciate it. Well, hey, as the cup comes around, uh, take that, and whenever you're ready, you can drink that at your time. Amen. And that's God's heart for us. I know there's times to wait. Hold on to me. Come out of the darkness. Run to the light. Come out of the hiding. Turn to God. Turn to your brothers and sisters. And it's amazing. God lifts us up out of the miry pit and he sets our feet on solid ground. And he could do that for us again today. Well, thanks so much for being here today. God bless you. Sure thankful for this church family. Um, hey, I'm going to send us out with a word of prayer. Uh, the first Sunday of the month, uh, we always take what we call our deacons fund offering. Um, that's to help um, with needs in our church or in our community. If you'd like to contribute to that above and beyond the regular offering. Also, it is Upward Pancake Breakfast. So uh, feel free to stop by, grab some pancakes, um, say hello. Uh, but for now, let me dismiss us with a word of prayer and ask God's blessing as we go. God, we, your people, have have gathered together. Lord, we've sung songs to try to write our heart. We've opened up your word to be guided. Now, Lord, help us to love one another. Help us to go out arm in arm as we wait for all that you have for us. Lord, your church is in a season of waiting for your return. Come, Lord Jesus. But Father, in this time, we want to be about your business. So lead us, guide us, fill us with your spirit, Lord, as we go to do your task for your glory in this city and in this world. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you. Have a great day.